When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up this week, our critics review Miss Bala. It was a 2011 Mexican film, very successful at the box office. Critics appreciated it, too. Now it's remade, starring Gina Rodriguez and directed by Catherine Hardwick. We'll also hear about the U.S.-Icelandic co-production Arctic and Velvet Buzzsaw with Jake Gyllenhaal. All this week on Film Week. KPCC podcasts are supported by Warner Brothers Pictures, presenting the soulfully authentic A Star is Born, starring Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, and Sam Elliott in their Academy Award-nominated performances for consideration in all categories. Great to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Joined by critics Leah Lowenstein, Tim Cogshell, and Charles Solomon. Tim of Alt Film Guide, Synagogues.com, and Charles of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the action thriller Miss Bala, starring Gina Rodriguez, Ismael Cruz Cordova, and Thomas Decker. Catherine Hardwick is the director, and it's a remake of a 2011 Mexican film about a makeup artist visiting her friend in Tijuana, kidnapped and forced to smuggle laundered money for a drug cartel. What's your deal? I grew up in the States. I, I lived here for a few years. My father is American and he owned a factory of maquiladora here. And where's the maquiladora? It's gone. And your father? Gone too. I can help you find your friend. But you have to do something for me first. You do that, and I'll help you find Susan. You mess around, and I'll kill you both. Miss Bala is written by Gareth Dunay Alcacer in a feature writing debut. Tim, what do you think of the remake of Miss Bala? Well, you know, I, I suppose it's the thing that we always say on this movie. The 2011 film, I happen to have been on the show for the 2011 film. A wonderful film. A really, really wonderful film. Um, this film suffers by its Hollywoodization. We know exactly what you mean. It's that other film. You're watching that film. That film is grungy. Uh, that film uh, is is uh, intense and, and sharp, and you feel like these things are actually happening. Th- these are effectively the same films too. Even the storyline is the same. In the original film, she was an American, a Mexican of American descent, who who goes across the border. Same thing here. Um, uh, here, this film is like I don't know three quarters in Spanish. So it's also so why remake it's it? It's also kind of weird. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's this thing. now, I, but I do know why they did it. I do what I do like about the film uh, is uh, Miss Rodriguez. She's pretty good in the movie. But the rest of the story is just it's all so slick and so Hollywood, and you can see the money. You can see the money on the screen. That wasn't true of the other movie, which and isn't I, positive. Yeah, which is not a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this movie also dilutes to me what, what are the strengths of Catherine Hardwick, who's a terrific director who uh, is known for things like Twilight, 13, Lords of Dogtown. She has a very energetic 
um, and very, very strong visual sense. To me, it felt really kind of diluted and dissipated here. And yes, as Tim said, kind of Hollywoodized. Gina Rodriguez is a, a compelling heroine, and she does a does a good job kind of making you identify with her. But for me, what the film lacked was really any sort of perspective. Um, it was, you know, it's sort of like everyone's bad. The, the the drug cartel guys are bad. The cops are bad. The the uh, the her the people that she thinks are her new friends may be bad. And and so you don't even have any sense of you know her bearings and, and where she's going. Um, she's trying to rescue her friend who's been abducted, but gets sucked into this world. And it's really just sort of an excuse to to, to turn her into a badass towards the end of the film. But but really. Like like you said, Tim, so much Hollywoodized. Mm. I'm curious about um, the the performance here of Gina Rodriguez versus Stephanie Sigmund, who starred in the first film. Do they approach the role similarly? Um, actually, I'm going to have to say no. Of course, with Stephanie, uh, I didn't know that her as an actress. So to me, she was this character in this film. With mm-hmm. Gina, you know, she, she exists in my mind already as a particular kind of character. She chooses to play the character very differently than anything I've seen her do before. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that the, uh, what, would, what would you call it, just the verisimilitude of Stephanie was mm-hmm. much, much deeper. Right. Gina, I caught acting. Right. There's a grittiness to that performance and to that film, whereas here it really felt, gosh, it, it felt almost sort of studied to the point where, you know, the, the, the shots, which some of which are actual recreations of, of some of the shots in that film, but but they lack sort of the 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 energy and the grittiness of those there, there, There's yeah. a central joke in this film that I do like, though, where everyone is always telling Gina uh, how uh, her Spanish is so not Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Bala, remake of the 2011 Mexican film. This version directed by Catherine Hardwick, written by Gareth Dunay, Acocer, and starring Gina Rodriguez. Rated PG-13. It's in wide release. And The Frame's John Horn interviewed director Catherine Hardwick earlier this week. You can hear it kpcc.org slash the frame. We also link from our Film Week page. The Icelandic U.S. co-production Arctic, a drama that stars Mads Mikkelsen and Maria uh, Thelma uh, Smaradotir, uh, the film directed by Joe Penna, and Penna co-wrote it with Ryan Morrison. Leo, what do you think of Arctic? Larry, I absolutely loved this film. This was hands down for me the top film of the week. If you like uh, survival epics, um, and I happen to love them. I, they're sort of a subspecialty of mine. This is one of the very, very best. I won't say whether there is survival or not, but uh, Mads Mikkelsen is stranded. We don't know for how long, because as the film begins, he's already been in the Arctic for a very long time. Um, he's learned to ice fish. He's learned to um, to get by in his, in his little um, hollowed-out airplane. And, um, you know, we, we don't know much about him, but we have a pretty strong sense of identification with him. At a certain point in the film, a helicopter crashes and he thinks it may be coming to rescue him. That's not giving too much away to say there is a, a woman in there that he pulls out. She's barely alive. And that gives him a new kind of hope. Sort of like um, Wilson. Adam and Eve, well, right? <laughs> or sort of like Wilson in um, yeah. in. Uh, Castaway. Um, in Castaway, she's his she's his volleyball, um, and and that sort of changes his perspective on you know what whether he should try to move get out of there, which which would take days and days and 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 tons of effort, um, and it's to me this was just absolutely 
gripping. There's also there's a polar bear in there. Yeah. Uh, there's um, you know all like every every bit of Arctic chill when you're sitting there. You can feel the wind kind of rushing on your face. It's just it's it's so thrilling. Re- real polar bear or digital real, effect? Well, bear? this is important. It was a real polar bear, mm. and the filmmakers found a way to make this entire movie for only two million dollars and shoot it in 19 days. Joe Penna is an extremely talented visual artist. He's done a lot of uh, videos on YouTube. He's known for that. And when they pitched, he and his writing partner, Ryan Abramson, pitched the film, um, you know, they were they they said, OK, our budget's two million. And and the people they were talking to said two million, two million just for the bear or two million. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they it is a the real bear. has got a good agent. <laughs> it is a real bear. And it's oh, my gosh. I yeah, yeah I, 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 I jumped. I, I love this movie as much as you do. I love the way this movie reveals things. So, for instance, it does, in fact, start with the action already there. When we meet him, uh, we don't quite, we're not quite clear exactly what has happened, but it shows you what's happened. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's all this, it's castaway meets all is lost is what yep. it is. But better than both, uh, I yeah. think. Well, so it's, much it's, better. It's, 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 it's very good. I'm a big, big fan all of all is lost. All is lost, I yeah, thought was too. a little... Uh, uh, oh, almost, no dialogue, almost no dialogue in this too. I like the way it reveals something about him. He is a guy that we come to know as this guy. He is hopeful. He is optimistic. Mm-hmm. He's been doing this routine, this routine, this routine, uh, and, uh, and and, and he just keeps right at it. And then when this new thing happens, this new mm-hmm. thing happens, he has to make this decision. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to her the whole time. And it's kind of the way Tom Hanks talked to that to, Wilson. That, to, to Wilson. But he's always telling her, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to make it. And when everything goes terrible, everything goes terrible, he comes back and says, okay, okay, it's okay. We'll figure out a different thing. We'll figure out a different thing. Well, and, and then he figures out a different thing. And I just like that about his character. He's going to save I, that girl if it's the last <laughs> thing he does. And I love, and that's a testament also to the directing by Joe Penna, to the writing. There isn't a lot of dialogue in the script, but it's incredibly well thought out. It's incredibly carefully um Anticipated and and just you know they thought of everything face. and Mads, and Mads, Mads is, what a great staggering that, that performance face. by Mads Mikkelsen. It's just extraordinary. It's, it's just and and also to you know not to give anything away but the way it ends, my God, it leaves you with your heart in your mouth and it's just this movie gripping from start to finish. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you like survival stories, this should go to the top hey, of the you've, list. You've sold it, Leo. Yeah, I feel go it. See it. <laughs> yeah, I got the chills. Filmed in Iceland, standing in for the Arctic. That's right. Yep. Uh, the film is Arctic. Mads Mikkelsen, Maria Thelma, Smaderotter are the co-stars. Joe Penna directing. Ryan Morrison co-wrote it with Penna. It's rated PG-13. You can see it at the Landmark in West L.A. or the Arclight in Hollywood. Velvet Buzzsaw, a horror thriller starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Rene Russo, and Tony Collette. Dan Gilroy directs it. After a series of paintings by an unknown artist are discovered, a supernatural force enacts revenge on those who allowed their greed to get in the way of art. There is some sort of power. Some spirit connected to his art. (gasps) Something truly strange is going on! The film is uh, Velvet Buzzsaw. The premise sounds like a satire. Uh, Is it, Lael? It is. Yes. It is a... It is, in in large part, a spoof of the art world. And uh, that 
was the part of the film that I actually liked the best. Um, it's also kind of a spoof or send up of the horror genre in certain other ways. It's difficult to walk that line of comedy and horror. You know, films like Get Out have done it extremely well. And then there are, you know, there's the sort of the complete all out satire of the horror films. Um, this is this. It walks the line fairly well. It's incredibly well cast. I mean, you have an A-list cast, oh, yeah. John Malkovich, uh, Tony Collette, Renee, Renee Russo, Russo Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal, who's having the time of his life as as an art critic. Um it it is sort of a spin on like a night gallery episode or um, a throne of blood. Is yeah something something like that. And that's right. The Vincent it's, Price, it's, right? Mm. But uh, um, so this film actually premiered at Sundance just just recently, and it's gotten you know a little bit of buzz for various. <laughs> sorry for, for for a few reasons. Um, I think um. it it does a, a really good job sending up the art world, and uh, it. it what happens is, so the uh, a woman who works in a gallery discovers this cache of paintings, sort of Egon Schiele esque, very um, dark and expressionistic, by her neighbor who's just died, this old man, and she takes possession of these paintings and then proceeds to make them known to her boss, the gallery owner, and and the critic, and and so on and so forth. The paintings seem to have a life of their own because the, they do. They they <laughs> they. Uh, it, Exact their revenge on those gazing at them um, in in short order, in the but wrong way. In yeah. the wrong, in the wrong way. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's it's chilling. It's eh, yeah, fun. I, mean, it, I don't know. It, it has these ideas about the art world, the, the Los Angeles art scene. If this was in the New York art scene, I think I would have liked it better, uh, because the New York art scene is obnoxious, uh, and the and the LA art scene is not obnoxious. So so, but, but this this film um, is taking to issue the way people value art and who establishes that value in the first place. In Which this is case, a worthy discussion. Uh, it, it, well, it, it, certainly it, easy to send up. It's yeah. easy to send, and that's the problem. It's really really easy to send up. You sort of couch all of these things in, in, in the context of these very particular characters. So this film is populated with characters, like yeah. with the capital C or caricatures uh, almost. Yeah, yeah, you know, and everybody. Everybody, I'm like, you know, look, I know people in the LA art scene. They're perfectly reasonable, rational people. They're not, they're, they're not these people, generally right. speaking. So this film has a point of view and a perspective about this, and it's poking and it's poking. Right. And I suppose that's okay, but it's poking at a scene that I don't know. Yeah, but you know, some of it actually was incredibly hilarious. There's a scene where Jake Gyllenhaal, this kind of a feat art critic, um, has to is is stuck in a room that's supposed to be a soundproof room and he's terrorized it's like an echo chamber with reviews that he's written of things in his and own voice. his own voice yeah. coming back at him and every critic including probably us we should be tortured the same way i suppose yeah uh, so that was an that was an interesting <laughs> moment for me there too i will say this the art is good yeah very interesting velvet buzzsaw satirical thriller it's streaming on netflix you can see it at the landmark in west la it's rated r stars jake gyllenhaal who was interviewed by john horn on the frame earlier this week we have a link to it on our film week page kpcc.org let's at least get started uh with tito and the birds which is a brazilian animated action adventure charles well, as it's become possible to make animated films on smaller budgets, we're starting to get interesting films from other parts of the world. Uh, I think it was two years ago we had um, Boy and World from Brazil. That was a very charming little film. This is a bit less charming, but very much reflective of the political troubles in Brazil, where they just elected a very far right wing uh, president. Mm. And the premise is that there's 
an epidemic of fear that's turning people into these blobby things and then essentially into stones where they become completely inactive. And we'll talk more about it after the break. All right. (laughs) We'll hear what Lael and Tim have to say about Tito and the Birds, a Brazilian animated film in selected theaters. Also hear about Then Came You, starring Asa Butterfield, a film directed by Peter Hutchings and much more. I invite you to join us coming up Sunday, February 17th. We're getting close to our 17th annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. Our critics on stage, clips from the films, Theater at Ace Hotel, tickets kpcc.org slash in person. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Critics Charles Solomon, Leah Lowenstein, Tim Cogshell with us. We're talking about the Brazilian animated feature Tito and the Birds. Uh, the three directors, Gustavo Steinberg, uh, Gabriel Bitar, and Andre Cototo. Uh, Charles, you're just uh, sharing with us, uh, you know, like as much as an earlier Brazilian animated yes. film. Um, in place of the, the very charming drawings of Boy and World, this is done in kind of a pseudo oil brush strokes kind of look to it. Um, I think the story has problems. Um, it's not terribly well told. It's a short film. It's only 73 minutes long. But I don't think it really comes it, – it sets up a premise that uh, there's this epidemic of terror that's keeping people – withdrawn and taking them away from everyone else and forcing them into isolation. And there's a figure who's both promoting it and his uh, gated, guarded communities. But it, it it just didn't resolve itself as as a narrative for me. What do you think, Lael? Well, I kind of agree with Charles's point that it didn't its narrative through line wasn't that clear, but I thought it was visually quite stunning. I actually liked the um the mix of different medium mediums. I thought it was like I it was sort of like gouache and watercolor and drawn and it felt incredibly alive in terms of um you know the the, the look of tactile. the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. it felt very, very tactile to me. And I loved the score by Ruben Pfeffer and Gustavo Curlot. I thought the score was was unusually strong. Um, and I actually thought it was a pretty kind of original idea in a way, original in that, you know, well, I guess we've seen films that have dealt with the kid's psyche and, and so on and so forth. But in, in a wholly different, I thought, very powerful way. I liked this film. Mm. Is it is subtitled from the yes, Portuguese subtitled. to mm-hmm. English? Okay. Yes. The, the central theme of the film uh, about fear. And, and about how fear is overwhelming everyone and mm-hmm. causing them to, to, to internalize everything. Mm-hmm. I, that, that theme, I thought, was very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and again, the, the visual sort of oil painting, mm-hmm. digitized, and, and uh, it, it very tactile, as Charles says. But he's right. Charles is 100% right. The, the film doesn't resolve itself at all. It, 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 it's mystically, magically resolved, as opposed to resolved by things that people can actually do in the actual world to deal with their fear. And I thought that that was just a terrible mistake. That you're, um, now you're telling me that our fear can only be uh, solved by something magical. And, you know, that's no good. Now, I don't want to tell children that. Tito and the Birds, Brazilian animated features unrated. It's at Lemley's Glendale Theaters and the Edwards University Town Center in Irvine.
Then Came You stars Asa Butterfield, Macy Williams, and Nina Dobrev. Peter Hutchings, the director. Fergal Rock uh, is the screenwriter. Tim, what do you think? Then Came You. You, you know this this is an this is an all right movie. Uh, these movies have choices to make. Uh, this has, happens to be a youth oriented film about a young woman who has cancer, uh, who comes into contact with a young man who's a hypochondriac uh, who always thinks that he's dying from something, but actually isn't. Played by Asa Butterfield, and how they sort of come together. And then a third character. Character, uh, a, um, flight attendant. a flight attendant uh, who, uh, who comes into his life. And, Dobrev, and, uh, yeah. and, and that's an interesting little triangle there. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these films uh, sort of play, this one, this is one where it plays out, you know, cancer, quirky, quirky cancer. Somebody has cancer and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna play this story out uh, as quirkily as we possibly can. I don't care for those uh, because they don't ring true to me. On the other hand, the other sort of cancer story that you'll run into sometimes will be the wretched horrors of cancer from mm. beginning to end and it's just this sort of like ongoing misery. And, and I don't like those either because so they, the those theme don't play is, true. It's hard to do cancer. It on really, film. really is. And you know, and if you've dealt with these things as, as as people of a certain age probably have in their lives, I very seldom find one that speaks to the truth of what these situations are like. Right, I agree with you. It uh, that that the film comes off as sort of as likable, quirkily likable as it is, despite that the cancer theme is sort of remarkable. Um, and really due to the performances, I think Asa Butterfield is very, very likable. And, um, and so Maisie, is, Maisie so Williams. is Maisie Williams. Um, and, you know, there's it's sort of it's 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 sweet kind of watching this kind of romantic triangle develop. I mean, he he. She's trying to set him up with with the flight attendant, and really he realizes that maybe the true love of his life is the one who's dying. So it's kind of cute. Yeah. Then came you, unrated Lemley's Glendale Theaters, Daughter of Mine, an Italian drama directed by Laura uh, Bisperi, uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with Francesca Manieri. Uh, Valer- uh, Valeria Golino stars in the film. Tim, what do you think of Daughter of Mine? I rather enjoyed this film. Valeria Golina first saw her in Patrice Leconte's hairdresser's husband oh uh, yes yeah. oh, yeah. oh, talk oh. about a haunting film oh, oh, wow, that oh, wow. film yeah. uh stayed with me for years yeah. afterwards yeah. And, 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 yeah her i'm a big patrice lecon fan and, but there she is she's here and she still has this intensity so she's playing this woman who ostensibly has this daughter uh, and she's very protective of her daughter and takes care of her her daughter runs across this other woman who is re- uh, um, associated with her mother in a certain way and this is a loose woman who's sort of roaming around the community doing what she does she drinks too much, uh, involved with men all over the place. We find out fairly quickly, the little girl does fairly quickly, that that woman is her actual mother. And uh, and and her sort of actual mother decides she wants her back, and that and now we have another triangle going on here. And what happens between the little girl and these two women, and why she ended up with uh, uh, Golina in the first place, is what the story is about. And that moved me; it really, really got to me. And that little girl trying to figure out who of these women is actually my mother. I thought was a really interesting story. We haven't seen a lot of films from Italy this year, have we? No, 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 not very. Seems many, like it's been no, kind no. of a quiet year. A daughter of mine, the film Valeria Golino stars uh, Laura Bispuri, the director and co-screenwriter. It's unrated at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Uh, Our next film, Hunter, Hunter, The Last Mission, a Japanese animated film uh, directed by uh, Kiichiro uh, Kawaguchi. What do you think, Charles? 
Well, Hunter Hunter is a very popular, um, like, boys series about Gon and his friends who are training to be hunters, which give them a lot of privileges in that society. And he's a, a plucky, upbeat, uh, enthusiastic, eager kind of hero. Um, he generally fights with a fishing pole with a lure at the end of it. And his friend uh, Kilua uses a yo-yo in battle, plus manipulating the, you know, the kind of force type thing. Um, it's all right. I found it a bit slight. And the series usually feels a bit more upbeat and enthusiastic and energetic. This gets rather dark with um, a character summoning up all these past wrongs and reincarnations. And there are lots of flashbacks. Uh, and I didn't feel it was as, again, as much fun as the Hunter Hunter series is that's uh, fairly long running. Um but we're in the unusual situation of having two anime features in the theaters right now. The other being Dragon Ball Super Broly, which has been setting records for Japanese animation in the theaters. It's now the third most successful uh, Japanese theater in U.S. Uh, theatrical history. Wow. Behind it's the, in wide release. Yeah. And it was number one its opening day. Um, this, it's basically a remake of the Dragon Ball Z eighth movie, the legendary Super Saiyan. When the planet Vegeta was destroyed, the only survivors were Goku, the hero of the series, the greatest hero anyone's ever, ever. Uh, Prince Vegeta, who's also on Earth, his kind of rival. And then Broly and his father, who existed on this distant, desolate world. Now, the nasty alien Frieza has brought him to Earth. So, of course, Goku and then Goku and Vegeta have to take him out. Um, It's basically one build up to one incredibly long fight that devastates the entire continent of Antarctica. Lots of explosions, lots of ramping up, lots of power punches, super moves, which is, of course, exactly what Dragon Ball fans love. And they do a good job of taking the flat look of the characters, which everyone wants preserved, and adding these super over-the-top effects to it. So it's, I mean, if you like Dragon Ball, you will love this. So this set on steroids with a big budget. Yes. yes. Bigger than the series, anyway. Which was originally filled on 16, it was so cheap. (laughs) Wow. Dragon Ball Super Broly, that's in wide release. Actually opened last week, but continues in theaters with its very successful run. And then the first of the Japanese animated films, Charles, we're talking about Hunter Hunter, The Last Mission, is at the Downtown Independent Theater in downtown L.A. Uh, the Harkins Theater, uh, Harkins Theaters in Cerritos and in Chino Hills. Hunter Hunter, The Last Mission is rated PG-13. Who Will Write Our History tells the story of historian Emanuel Ringelblum, uh, also known by a, a code name, uh, who led a clandestine group of journalist scholars and community leaders in the Warsaw Ghetto. Tim sounds like a fascinating story how's the film who will write our history and uh, a documentary so this is this is how this is listed as a documentary i think we need a new category i think we need a new category this film is built from certainly all of the things that uh, a documentary would be built from particularly the the uh, archives of the oneg of the oneg shabbos so in the warsaw ghetto um, um, uh, these people led by uh, this doctor uh, gathered together 
all of the artifacts that they could of uh, all of the um, Polish Jews in the ghetto, actual physical things, letters, diary entries, uh, valuable documents, and hid them away. For, for, for a good portion of, um, of the early part of the occupation, they would smuggle some of these things out, accounts of what was actually happening in the ghetto. And the very first re- uh, reportage of what was happening in the ghetto that, that, that came to the rest of the world, uh, the, brutality, uh, the cruelty and the brutality came from this group of people. Um, documentary. So, yes, we have talking heads and we have archival footage, uh, all the things you would expect. And then we have these very cinematic scenes that are, I guess, recreations. But they're not like the recreations you would normally see. These are scenes uh, crafted as they would be in any sort of major motion picture. Um, And there are a lot of them. So very often you're watching this movie and you're in a movie. You're just in a movie. And then every now and again, we come out to a talking head that explains something to us. And we go into some archival footage from the period. And then we are back in this movie with actors per- portraying these people. But it's, that, it's not really a docudrama then? Not a docudrama because we also have voiceover, Joan Allen, Adrian Brody and others, reading uh, the letters and diary entries of, of these folks. So we have all of these sort of elements floating around. Um, and it's really quite striking. First of all, uh, the information, the actual content of the film is devastating. Uh, whatever you think you knew about what went on in those Warsaw ghettos, I promise you, you have no idea until you see this movie. Um, now, I'm, I'm having a little trouble uh, simply saying that this is a, a, a doc- because obviously there's a lot of manipulation going on here, creative filmmaking going on here. It's not just a documentary. I think we need another term for what this is. It's not a docudrama. It's not a documentary, clean cut a, a, as it would be, but it is a very powerful and moving uh, recitation of this, these events. Do you endorse the, the filmmaking here? I do endorse the filmmaking because I think that the filmmakers are trying to be as true as possible in the cinematic scenes as they can be to the archival footage and the archival information that's coming to us from these people from uh, from 80 years ago. No, I agree with Tim that we need this new category because in the last few years we've had several films where people took uh, costumed actors, filmed them, processed it using CG, and then created sort of documentaries. There was one about Gallipoli, for yeah, example, yeah. Uh, that had footage that doesn't exist that they recreated and then put into this historical context. So it's not really a documentary. It's not really fiction. What is it? And last week we had The Invisibles, which was archival footage. It took us back to you know, World War II, and then there were recreated scenes. And so, yeah, it would be... Well, and now there's uh, They Will Not Be Forgotten. That's the World War I footage uh, that's been processed and made into 3D. And colorized and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, We're talking about who will write our history, uh, a documentary, and a lot more. Uh, It's at Lemley's Music Hall in Beverly Hills, uh, Lemley's Town Center uh, in uh, in Encino, the Fine Arts uh, Theater. Uh, this Saturday as well, only uh, Who Will Write Our History is unrated. Reminder to come out, see us at uh, the Theater at Ace Hotel on Broadway for our next Film Week Academy Awards preview, 17th annual. There are critics and clips. Tickets, kpcc.org slash in person. Back shortly. 
KPCC podcasts are supported by Warner Brothers Pictures, presenting the soulfully authentic A Star is Born, starring Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, and Sam Elliott in their Academy Award-nominated performances. Now nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. Kenneth Duran of the Los Angeles Times calls it passionate, emotional, and fearless. And AFI calls the film a stellar achievement in its own universe. For consideration in all categories. When an earthquake hits, you need to drop, cover, and hold on. Definitely there will be the perception that the ground is is literally waving in front of you. But what do you do after the shaking stops? When the power is out, the roads are blocked. I'm Jacob Margolis, host of KPCC's new podcast, The Big One, your survival guide. I've got plenty of answers for you. Listen in Apple Podcasts. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. We are in the midst of the Sundance Film Festival closing out this weekend in Park City, Utah. Of course, it is among North America's most influential film festivals. And a number of major themes to take away from it to talk with us about uh, the films that have debuted as well as some of the biggest news out of Sundance and Park City is the host of The Frame, John Horn, and KPECC Film Week critic Amy Nicholson, also film writer for The Guardian and host of the podcast The Canon and Unspooled. Amy and John, good to have you both with us. John, let's let's start with you. What, what do you think some of the most important news out of Sundance? Well, I the news that has really astonished me is how much money is being spent. And in particular, how much money is being spent by one company, and that is Amazon through their streaming service. They bought a, a movie starring Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling called Late Night uh, for $13 million. They bought a story about the U.S. Senate investigation into torture post 9-11 called The Report for $14 million. And then they uh, bought a feel-good story about a woman training for a marathon called Brittany Runs a Marathon for $14 million. You know, the festival wraps up Sunday. There may be more deals that are going to happen over the weekend. That's almost $45 million right there for three movies. And I think that is extraordinary. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of money spent. Last year was a little bit more cautious. And New Line and Warner Brothers spent even more for that for a movie called Blinded by the Light, which is about a young boy who's inspired by the music of Bruce Springsteen. Those are crazy numbers in any festival, one in and of itself. But to have four deals of that size... Uh, it's just, to me, astonishing. Amy, how much of this uh, is sort of pendulum swings? You you have companies that get burned by, by you know, some of the movies. They're sure going to be audience-pleasing, and they don't connect. The money is lost. And then they get more skittish the next year. But then you get a breakout hit out of Sundance, and then, the you know, the purse strings open again. Is that what we're seeing, just the pendulum swinging back? I would think so. I mean, last year, the film that made the most noise in terms of giant, ridiculous buy was when they spent just $10 million on a film called Assassination Nation, the company Neon, which did not nearly make its money back. So I think people going into this year were a little bit nervous. Like, will it work? Yet Amazon took last year off. Um, So did Netflix for the most part. So the fact that they're both back in full swing, it's a good pulse take for the measure of how they think indie films are doing. I like seeing what they bet on because it makes me feel like they got the algorithms. They know what's happening in independent film that audiences do want to see. So I find it hopeful. 
I hope they don't fall too much on their face, though. One of the things expressed by um, the organizers of of the festival is more representation of of women directors and screenwriters. Are you seeing that this year, Amy? Oh, 100%. Yeah, they have a new head of programming, Kim Yutani, who's been with the festival for a long time but now took the reins. And the the lineup she has scheduled is really notable. I mean, it's 45% female directors. There's a lot of, like, first-time films from people of color. There's a lot of first-time faces here, a lot of major discoveries. You can tell that what they're trying to do this year at the festival is plant the seeds for the next wave of talent coming out. You're not seeing that many of, like, the mopey white guy movies this year. Oh, there's some. You just haven't got the <laughs> You've I'm avoided those. Yeah, you, you've chosen better than I have. <laughs> John, do you perceive that as well? There's kind of a generation turnover at Sundance? Well, I think Sundance, like a lot of other festivals, has not done a good job in representing underrepresented uh, filmmakers. And Sundance has always been really good. And this year, I think they've done exceptionally well. And Kim Yutani, as Amy mentioned, is the new director of programming. Previously, and I thought he did a very good job, but Trevor Growth was a guy. And I thought, I think people, even though Sundance has a very diverse group of programmers. Ultimately, the taste of the head programmers can be reflected in the lineup. And I think it's also worth noting that some of these big sales for some of these movies were directed by women. And I think that's important as well. So it's not just that women are giving slots of films that, you know, people say, well, it's maybe it's not that good a movie, but we want to make sure we have some equity. These are really good movies and the buyers are recognizing them as really good films as well. And it's not just women behind the camera. A lot of these movies star women in prominent roles. That's certainly the case for Late Night, certainly the case for Britney Runs a Marathon. So a lot of these movies aren't just made by women. They feature women uh, in major roles. We're talking about the Sundance Film Festival in its final days. Joining us, Sundance attendees John Horn of The Frame and Amy Nicholson, KPCC Film Week critic. A documentary's always a big deal at Sundance, and, and there are a number of them um, certainly worth our time to discuss. But what's gotten a tremendous amount of attention, the single screening of Leaving Neverland, in which two accusers uh, of Michael Jackson claimed that Jackson molested them when they were young boys. Uh, They had testified in Jackson's, uh, the criminal case against him, denying those accusations. Now they say that Jackson had molested them. Neither of you have seen the Jackson doc, but John, uh, how prominent has it been in conversation around the festival? I mean, it was very prominent conversation weeks before the festival started. The festival organizers said that they were targeted by some direct threats of violence for the festival for having programming, for having programmed the film. There was heightened security at the screening. They had bomb-sniffing dogs. They said they had undercover officers. Uh, It was an unusual screening, and I think it's also the kind of movie that Sundance likes to program. It's a movie that's going to start a lot of conversations. It's going to be polarizing. They did this a couple years ago with a documentary about Scientology called Going Clear by Alex Gibney. And the reaction is exactly what you would hope a documentary like this would generate. The Jackson family has said it's it's a work of fiction and that it's not to be believed. The people I've talked to who have seen the film said it's absolutely credible and they believe uh, what the accusers are saying. But I don't think any film is always going to give everybody the answer they want. And that's true in some narrative films as well. And I think that's what's so interesting about a number of documentaries at the festival, including the Michael Jackson one, that people come out of it arguing and maybe they come to a conclusion, but maybe not everybody sees the film the same way. 
All right. Uh, well, let's talk about some specific films that each of you have seen. We talked about uh, briefly Brittany Runs a Marathon, which was one of the big purchases at the festival. Jillian Bell, Michaela Watkins star, Paul Down, Colizo, the writer-director. Amy, what do you think briefly of Brittany Runs a Marathon? I mean, this movie is just giant crowd pleaser. You know, I have to admit, I was sort of reluctant seeing this movie. I mean, we've had a movie sort of like this before with Simon Pegg running a marathon. And I thought, oh, do I have to? It's just going to make me feel lazy, which I am. <laughs> but Jillian Bell is just, you know, she's a comedian who I think people have been wanting to see get that big film for a while. You know, she was one of the best parts of 22 Jump Street. She's been around. And this is like, putting her front and center. And I think you might feel a tiny bit in the back of your throat. Like, I know I'm being conned by something that just wants to make me happy, but people are loving that. They're really in the mood for that. And it's mm. working. We're talking about Brittany runs a marathon, uh, the farewell, a Chinese comedy starring Aquafina, written and directed by Lulu Wang. John, what do you think of that one? I think this is a great movie. And this is to me, the authentic version of crazy rich Asians. This is a woman and it's based very much on Lulu Wang's own life story. Uh, who lives in America. She has a Chinese uh, grandmother who is very ill. And as happens, not just in her family, but happens in a lot of families in this part of the world, they don't tell her that she's really dying. Uh, and so all of the family kind of comes together around a wedding that may or may not be a sham. And family visits uh, the grandmother in China, and they don't tell her exactly what's happening. But it's a very lovely story about how this family comes together what is important, whether or not the, the grandmother actually knows that she's sick. I think there's some people who read this film, including me, that she actually knows and she's going to go along with the ruse because it brings everybody together. It's a very personal film to Lulu. Aquafina gives a great performance basically in the, uh, you know, in, in, in a life story of Lulu herself. Uh, I thought it was a very satisfying is, film. Is any of the film in English? It's almost all in Mandarin. So it is, uh, again, there's some English in it, but it is, and that was, you know, a classic question at Sundance. Would people outside of the festival go see a movie that was like crazy crazy rich Asians in terms of the look of the actors but was not in English and I hope so I mean I think it was a very satisfying film and uh, we're going to see it soon it's going to come A24 out. has picked it yes. up so it's going to get distribution The Farewell the Chinese comedy starring Aquafina Lulu Wang the writer director it's unrated we're talking about the movies in competition at the Sundance Film Festival joining us our film week critic Amy Nicholson John Horn the host of the Friends both of them Sundance veterans talking about uh, some of the movies we'll have a chance to see and want to make sure we make a point to see when they either uh, head their way to local theaters or end up on a streaming service or on an HBO or the like. We'll continue our conversation on Film Week. Reminder, tickets remain for our 17th Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview coming up Sunday, February 17th, Theater at Ace Hotel. Tickets at kpcc.org slash in person. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. And my pleasure to have two of my favorite people joining us to talk about the Sundance Film Festival. Amy Nicholson, our Film Week critic, who will be with us on stage. Theater at Ace Hotel coming up Sunday, February 17th. 17th Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. John Horn, the host of The Frame, with us as well. Uh, next up for Sundance Films, Clemency, starring Alfred Woodard, Aldous Hodge, and Richard Schiff. The film is written and directed by Chinonye 
Okay. Chukwu, Amy, what do you think of Clemency? Yeah, I mean, this is a film that I feel like is designed to get the star Alfrey Woodard an Oscar nomination. I mean, in this film, she plays the warden of a hospital where much of her job is taken up with the death row inmates. And the film opens with an execution by lethal injection that just it could not go worse for everybody involved. And then from there, the next up on the list on the on the docket is a very kindly man that she's really wrestling with. And so it's a film about a woman who is trying so much to keep composed and to try to do the right thing. You know, when you're the, when you think about it, when you're the warden of a prison that has to oversee executions, you didn't sentence the man and you don't have any control over whether or not they even get clemency at the end. That's the governor. And so it's all about her trying to maintain decorum and to try to run this this jail in the best way possible and just the emotional toll it takes on her. I mean, this is a film that at the halfway point, basically every character starts crying and they just cry throughout the rest of the film. And the director does that that kind of superstar give this person an Oscar job of just holding the camera on everyone's face as you watch the tears just flow. I mean, at one point, Alfrey is leaking from literally every orifice on her face. And that's how you know she's probably going to get a nomination. I would not be surprised. Well, she's deserving. No question. Clemency is the film uh, from Chinonye Chukwu, the writer-director. Loose, uh, drama starring Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, Kelvin Harrison Jr., and Octavia Spencer, Julius Ona, the director and co-screenwriter. John, what do you think of Loose? I think Loose is a fascinating movie, and I think it's, it's representative of a lot of what happens at Sundance, unlike in studio films. This is a story about a well-to-do white couple played by Tim Roth and Naomi Watts, and they have adopted a African son uh, who's played by Calvin Harrison. He has fled the war in Africa, and he's now this student who you would say maybe is too good to be true, but in whose eyes? He is a valedictorian at a high school his One of his history teachers, played by Octavia Spencer, thinks that there's something amiss in his behavior, that he's maybe not as good as he seems. But what's fascinating about Luce is that it doesn't give you the answers. You are never quite sure of who's telling the truth, who Luce, which is the title of the character, played by Calvin Harrison, who he actually is, if he is an invention of his own, if he is invented by the people around him. I think it's a very provocative film, but unlike so many studio films, it doesn't wrap itself up in a nice little bow. You come out of the film arguing with the people who you've seen it with, not really knowing what the outcome is, and I think that's the point of the movie. I thought it was a very well-made movie, and this film is going to come to theaters or a streaming service soon. It went to Sundance without a distributor. It will leave Sundance with some sort of deal. What a fascinating premise for Luce. Um, also, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, starring Jimmy Fails and Finn Whitrock, Joe Talbot, director, Robert Richard, uh, the screenwriter, John. This is a incredibly personal film. It is really much, uh, it's really a story about Joe Talbot's friendship with this uh, kid named Jimmy Fails, who actually plays himself in the story. They were young men grew up, growing up in San Francisco. It's really a story about Jimmy Fails family and about their home. They lost their home in a foreclosure. And this is a fictionalized story about that home. It's got some elements of magical realism. It's got skateboarding. It's a story about friendship. It's a story about family. It is really hard to describe. And yet it's incredibly personal. And it's a real representation of how a friendship, these two kids went to high school together, Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails. They went on long walks together. They talked to each other. They didn't Instagram. They didn't Snapchat. They didn't text. They talked to each other about their lives, about their struggles. And those talks led to this movie. It's incredibly personal. But I think it's so personal that it's actually really universal because it's a very small 
but very interesting film. And it's got a distributor for A24. Yeah, um, and this is a movie that actually was co-produced by Plan B, which is the company that behind Moonlight. It's uh, Jeremy Kleiner, Dee Garner, and uh, Brad Pitt's production company. So even though it's very small... A lot of people have recognized the ambition of the film and about Joe Talbot's filmmaking skills. The Last Black Man in San Francisco, the movie we're talking about. We're getting short on time. I do want to move to the docs to make sure we do them justice. John, what's your favorite doc that you've seen so far? Oh, my goodness. It, there are so many great documentaries at Sundance. It's it's hard to know where to start. I'm going to say my favorite film up there was a movie called American Factory. It is about a GM plant that was closed in Ohio, a Chinese company takes it over and starts building uh, glass for cars in the company, in the factory. And it's about the, cha- the, you know, the contrast of cultures between the Chinese owners, the American workers, what happens at the Chinese factory, why they're much more productive than the factory in Ohio. It's such a great story about globalization and about labor. I think it's a fascinating film. It's called American Factory. American Factory. And Amy, your favorite doc so far. Oh, you know, there's been two I've liked a lot. There's one called Jawline, which is just a really dreamy documentary about this kid from Tennessee who's trying to become an Instagram star. And you know, it sounds kind of goofy and silly, but it really becomes this beautiful film on the way there's this whole cult of industry about trying to be positive online. You know, these boys trying to shoot videos for their female audiences all about believing in yourself while the boys themselves don't believe in themselves. And then this 21-year-old manager of, like, Instagram star shows up, this, like, Los Angeles kid with a Chanel necklace. He seems like – he almost seems unreal, this type of – this character. He is crazy. He's like if you had Louis B. Mayer but in the body of a millennial. <laughs> it's insane. I, I, so I have to give a shout-out to that one. And also the film Knock Down the House, which is a documentary about the campaign of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and also three other women who ran in the Democratic primary against incumbents. I wasn't expecting a ton from this doc. I thought it might be more in the key of RBG, you know, sort of fan service for people who admire these women. I wound up weeping at the end. It's incredibly, incredibly inspirational. I I just adored it. I, I would agree with you. I mean, we all know the outcome that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wins. And yet when you see her win, you're as surprised as she is. Uh, knock Down the House, that's the AOC film. Uh, Rachel Lears is the director. And Amy also uh, touting Jawline Eliza Mandelup, uh, the director of, of that documentary. John, I've got to quickly ask you about Hail Satan, which is a documentary about the Satanic Temple. It is and it isn't. And it's Hail Satan with a question mark, not an exclamation point. That's very important to the filmmaker, Penny Lane. This is a story about people whose religion is Satanism, but it's really not so much about their beliefs. It's about their feeling that if you are a government institution, a state, a city council, uh, a city, and you are going to put religious monuments on state land, a Ten Commandments monument, then you have to put up a similar uh, structure, similar monument to Satanism. And they are absolutely right in terms of law, in terms of the Constitution. So it's less about their faith and more about their saying you cannot, as a country, favor one religion over another. They go to some very creative means to make sure that their message is heard. And yet it's really a story about religious tolerance and intolerance. And it's very funny, even though it's about a very important issue. Hail Satan? <laughs> Question mark? Penny Lane, the director, Magnolia Pictures, uh, distributing uh, the film. Also, we should mention Alex Gibney, who just, you know, produces a documentary a week, it seems like, has a film, The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Just quickly, Amy, you like it, yes or no? I would 
was neutral on it. I mean, it's sort of the fire festival of Silicon Valley, but I did want to say really fast, the Hail Satan Satanists have been running around uh, getting sushi on Main Street, and it has been cracking people up. <laughs> All right. They're in full black. <laughs> hey, they know how to promote, even around Sundance. All right. John, Amy, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for being with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Have a wonderful weekend from all of us here.